Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and on this episode, I spoke with Andrea Ferrero. He spent seven years in the research department at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York before joining Oxford as a professor of economics. We had a great conversation about the economics of the COVID crisis and the future of the global economy coming out of the pandemic. Enjoy the episode, and I'll see you in the next one. I mean, we can just uh, jump right into it here with a, with a first question here. Uh, yes. Thank you, first of all, uh, Professor Ferrero. Am I, am I saying that correctly? You're saying very well. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank really you. appreciate you thank coming you. on. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, yeah. we're here to discuss some of the economics of COVID, looking at the uh, long term as we start to pull out of this, I mean, kind of weird depression, like a, a, almost an artificial depression. Uh, I don't know if that's how you'd characterize it. But uh, but how have you seen in the onset of the current economic crisis, uh, have you seen it uh, differ from downturns like 2008 or the Eurozone debt crisis? Yes. Uh, yes, I, I was actually wondering why uh, you call it uh, artificial. Uh, I mean, I guess it's definitely very different. Um, it's, uh, it's a type of, of shock uh, that when we think about the post-war recessions um, in US or in general in advanced economies uh, we haven't seen before. Um, but it's a very real recession. Uh, you know, uh, people have uh, lost their jobs, um, lost their income, although you know, I guess we'll discuss uh, the interventions that governments have put in place in order to mitigate those, uh, those events. Um, there's been uh, a quite large fall in uh, uh, in GDP, uh, spike in unemployment. So you know all the aspects that that we uh, typically associate with uh, recessions are there uh, in place. Uh, but it is absolutely right that it's very different from uh, the latest uh, one or two recession events. You know which country you're looking at. Um, so if we think about the global financial crisis started in 2008 um, and the Euro debt crisis that started a couple of years later um, as affecting mostly uh, Europe um, as two separate events, one following the other. Uh, I guess the main distinctive feature uh, of, of those events was that the financial system was at the, was at the center of uh, of the recession um the 2008 crisis was uh, uh, originated in in the us uh, in the uh, in the housing market but then spread it to the overall economy through the financial system um and not only the overall us economy but the overall world economy um because international financial markets are uh, you know very uh, interconnected developed um, and so it affected Europe, it affected Asia, federal, pretty much all countries uh, around the world through that channel to trade and the globalized financial, uh, economic and financial system. Um, the COVID crisis, uh, in terms of similarity, I guess, was also global. Uh, we've seen uh, world GDP fall. Actually, world GDP did not fall in the... Um, in 2008, because some of the emerging markets uh, were able to cope better with that recession, whereas in this pandemic, they were affected as well. Um, so the similarity, I guess, is had the global nature 
uh, as well. Uh, the difference is in this case, uh, the financial system uh, was not the epicenter uh, of the crisis. Um, and, and maybe on, I guess, on the positive uh, side, um, banks were better capitalized than in 2008. And so we're able to withstand the consequences of the shock much better. Um, I guess that's part of, uh, of the lessons that we learned from 2008. So between, say, 2010, 12, when uh, the, the most intense phase of also the European debt crisis kind of subsumed, there was, uh, you know, in, in many countries already ongoing and, and then in Europe as well, an ongoing process of uh, banking recapitalization, uh, more financial oversight. Uh, and uh, um, I think that process contributed greatly uh, to um, ensure financial stability in, in, this, uh, um, in, this, in this recession. Um, do you want me to go on with... Uh, or well, just, you want, you want, just to focus the discussion yeah, a little in, bit on... Yeah. A, on a, a, I'd be interested to hear your evaluation of government response, especially in terms of fiscal policy compared to 2008. Were there any sort of lessons learned, different approaches to recovery this time around? Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's right. So I guess that that's also where sort of I, I was going. Uh, I think that's the other notable difference with uh, 2008. Um, is that the policy, the policy mix in terms of uh, of response to the crisis changed quite significantly. Um, in two thousand eight, central uh, banks were the front of the fight against you know the financial crisis, um, and fiscal policy was uh, a little bit in the background, if not even in some countries possibly pushing against. Uh, uh, you know the the efforts that the central banks were, were undertaking. Um, in I think it was in two thousand and ten, uh, Ben Bernanke was then the uh, chairman of the Fed said something along the lines of you know there's only so much the central banks can do. Uh, governments need to step up and do their part through fiscal policy. So it was a clear call for help and and you know. Uh, support from, from from the fiscal authority. Um, not to mention the European situation where the crisis, the European debt crisis itself was fiscal in nature. So that was actually really the, the trigger of the crisis coupled with uh, instability of, of financial markets. Uh, and so, so the role of fiscal policy is completely different uh, in this time around, whereby um, central banks could not do as much. I mean, I think they uh, did their part. They, they did what they could. Uh, but we were at a point where monetary policy was already relatively close to its limit in terms of ability to respond to this type of event. Um, and, and so it was either the case that fiscal policy really did a lot more or we would have done overall a lot less because just there wasn't the, the, the ammunition that the monetary policy had back in, in 2008. Just, you know, just to give you an example, um, in 2006, when uh, house prices plateau and, and then turn around, 
so if you can think of that as the the onset of the financial crisis or the trigger of of the the financial crisis in the US uh interest rate uh were above 5%. Um in in 2020 when when the pandemic started in the US which was among the the countries the advanced countries the one with the highest level of the nominal interest rate interest rate were below 3%. Uh and so, you know, this, this gap of two percentage point uh, is quite significant. And in many countries, interest rate were much closer to zero. In, in Europe, uh, the European Monetary Union, they were already negative. So clearly, the main tool for monetary policy in the European Monetary Union was uh, basically, uh, you know, could not be used. No room uh, left. No room left, absolutely. Uh, and this is the result of, you know, the persistent uh, effect of the financial crisis, as well as some secular trends, uh, which maybe we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, later. Uh, so, what this central bank do? Well, you know, they uh, they cut interest rates where they had room to. Um, they deployed other unconventional measures, uh, quantitative easing, uh, liquidity injections, uh, communication through uh, forward guidance. So. Uh, talking about what they will do in the future, trying to uh, influence uh, expectations in the private sector that monetary policy will remain expansion in the hope that that would stimulate already uh, current activity. Uh, but fiscal policy really took the center stage. And, you know, we saw uh, very large fiscal stimulus packages uh, everywhere on both sides of, of the Atlantic and other countries as well. Um, worth, you know, more than 10 percentage point of GDP. Um, so massive interventions. Uh, part of it were money actually deployed, uh, you know, checks to individuals, uh, supports to businesses and so on. Uh, partly were guarantees. So, you know, it depends a little bit how you count them. Not all guarantees uh, had to be uh, used. Um, but, but anyways, you know, very large commitments on the fiscal side that, that obviously have uh, implications, which again, uh, I think we're going to talk about soon. Yeah, quicker responses as well. Uh, it seemed that, I mean, you can criticize the government, uh, maybe rightfully for a slow response to COVID, but in comparison to 2008, would you say that it's fair that the government's fiscal policy has been much more rapid in response to issues on the ground? Yes, absolutely. I, I think overall the fiscal response uh, is is a positive note in terms of uh, um, you know public policy uh, in, in response to the pandemic. Um, definitely, um, you know, uh, I, from my point of view, definitely the right thing to do. Um, you know, when you start looking at country by country, maybe in some instances, something else could have done um, some some examples, something more could have done. But, but I think overall, the, the judgment from my perspective is uh, um, is pretty positive. Yeah, uh, I, I think it, 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 it is testimony to kind of a little bit of a shift in uh, uh, in the view of, you know, economists, analysts, and so on about the taboos of, of fiscal policy uh, and sustainability of government debt and so on. Um, I guess, especially in the UK, um, austerity uh, that, you know, the Tory government led by 
uh, Cameron Os Osborne uh, pursued following uh, the year that crisis was motivated by some example of Southern European countries that just uh, face a fiscal crisis. Um, but I think, you know, the consensus has shifted quite significantly from, from back then. Um, and, and I think we've seen that the new consensus uh, in practice in, in 2020. Um, you know, some people uh, question whether the new consensus has taken us to, too far, uh, whether now we, we, we meaning governments, uh, in some countries tend to operate as if there were no fiscal uh, constraints no on, limits. on the economy, yeah. no limits. Uh, so that would be an, a view at the opposite extreme compared to, to what was prevalent in, in 2008. With that fiscal policy in mind, have you been surprised at all by the pace of economic recovery as more people get vaccinated and restrictions lift? Or is that something that should should have been expected, maybe should have even happened quicker? And this goes sort of back to what I, what I said at the beginning, that it's a bit of an uh, artificial uh, depression. Uh, where the the impacts of the depression are aren't artificial at all, but it, it, it's an, it's an external factor, a global pandemic, which caused all these underlying issues within the depression, and maybe it's that the depression, I mean, wouldn't have wouldn't have happened without the the pandemic. So people might be more likely to get back to consuming. Uh, plenty of people have been saving over this entire time. Sort of what what factors along those parameters have you noticed and are, have there been any surprises? Yeah, I guess uh, I'm, I'm starting to understand now a little bit better what you mean by uh, artificial. Um, well, as, first of all, um, you know, the drop in GDP has been extremely large, in fact, larger than uh, um than than in the 2008 crisis um but the recovery uh although not yet completed uh has been pretty sharp um now we have to think a little bit you know so so i wouldn't define it then necessarily as a as a depression uh as much as as a deep sharp uh contraction um we have to then think about our point of comparison in the sense that, again, if our point of comparison is the 2008 crisis, uh, then it looks very different, right? Because the 2008 crisis was was large, this, uh, probably post-war one, one of the largest, not the largest, uh, but very, very persistent, right? So the persistence of that, of that recession was, uh, was, um, was the, the one of the most notable feature. This one doesn't look at all like that, right? Because we've seen a very, very narrow V uh, in, in terms of how GDP and unemployment are, are, are behaving. Um, but if we go back further uh, in, in post-war recessions, um, it used to be the case that, that a lot of recession didn't last very long. So in that sense, it looks like, um, you know, a deeper version of earlier recessions. Uh, you know, if you look at some of the recession in the 70s, uh, early 80s, um, they were relatively short-lived and definitely didn't have the persistence of, um, of, the, uh, of the 2008 uh, recession. It also depends a lot on which indicator you look at. So 
For example, even the 2001 recession that was extremely mild had uh, a very persistent um, um, recovery in unemployment in the labor market. And, and I think the, the turning point for, for that behavior of labor market was actually the, the, early, the recession in the early 90s, where unemployment did not recover as fast as it used to be before in the 80s and, and in the 70s. And, and people typically point out that the interaction between business cycles, so what happens with booms and, and recessions, and structural transformation of the economy. So, uh, you know, globalization, offshoring, certain jobs that you know, uh, are lost during the recession, but never come back, as opposed to what was happening before, where, you know, a manufacturing job would be lost, but that would be recreated relatively quickly once uh, the economy uh, recovers. So so I think this interaction uh, is important, is interesting uh, to think about. And, um, and it's something that maybe even I mean, even today, we have to think about a little bit, especially in relation to what people have discussed uh, about the uh, changing nature of, of work, uh, you know, with uh, the pandemic sort of uh, um, making clear that a lot of jobs, especially in the service sector, can be done remotely. Does it mean that we'll never go back to the office as we used to? Like, we, you know, maybe we'll move to an hybrid way and and i think the views there are not yet settled and and only we need a little bit of time to figure out time for those trends to to yeah which which side has it right no because you you hear a lot of stories but at this moment there's still just kind of anecdotes whether you know the big corporation will have older employees at work every day of the week uh, or not, and what that's going to mean for for where people live, for the way they commute, and and so on and so forth. So, so I think potentially there there is there's another structural transformation of the labor market uh, that that's going to be important. Not to mention here in the UK how the recovery will interact with Brexit, because that's another big question mark that I guess is very hard to to predict. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we don't really have that bird's eye view yet. We're, we're still living it. Yeah, that's Wouldn't right. It? Because a lot of the uncertainty. So, so one feature of this of this recession that was clearly um, it was, it was pretty clear from the from the very early days is, is uncertainty. And and the uncertainty in this case is due to the fact that, you know, we, we, we still don't know. But, but a year ago, we, we really didn't know anything about uh, this epidemic, right? This this virus, uh, you know, we had scientists who kind of had the sense of of what it could look like, but but in terms of how to deal with it, um, it, was, it was really hard. And so so the uncertainty certainly 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 this bit sounds a little bit funny, but uh, it's clearly related to uh, to how uh, the health situation uh, will evolve. Um, and if vaccination progresses well, if the new variants uh, are still kind of handled well by, by the vaccine, then I think we can expect uh, the recovery to continue at a fast pace uh, and probably by the end of the year be kind of back where we were before, if not even uh, having, uh, you know, turn around and, and, and enter kind of a boom phase. Uh, on the other hand, if we have new waves, uh, then then you know the situation could look very different. 
So let's say sort of for the sake sake of argument and what we're all probably hoping is that the vaccines are effective against sort of new variants and strains and uh, restrictions lift uh, in the UK and other countries sort of on schedule and consumption and regular life can go back to, to, to normal. Uh, is there any worry? Are you worried at all about a superheating of the economy uh, and any kind of price inflation because of, I mean, US, both the US and UK governments have spent over 100% of GDP or are set to by the end of the, the fiscal year this year. Uh, does that worry you at all and sort of concerns over price inflation? Uh, no, not really, to be honest. Um, you know, the big constraints on monetary policy is on the downside, right? Is what you do when interest rate reach zero. And, you know, again, we've seen this in 2008. We still kind of seen it uh, after with the European debt crisis. We, we're kind of still seeing it today. Um, is, if the situation Im improves, um, you know, central banks know what to do. Uh, you know, they have to increase interest rate and, and they will. Uh, so, you know, to the extent that, that central banks remain independent, and hopefully that there won't be any threat to that. Um, I think in some sense, a pickup in, in inflation would be welcome because it would allow central banks to normalize. It would mean that, that as you said, that, that the economy will recover quickly and, and then, you know, we'll return to normal, uh, to, to a situation in which we have to deal with, with higher inflation. And as I was saying before, I think we, central banks know how to do that. Um, you know, we, we live for for a decade with inflation below target and, and central banks struggle a lot with that because uh, you could say that maybe some expectation became self-fulfilling of, of low inflation. Uh, maybe some of the unconventional measures that were put in place were not completely clear to the public and that contributed to, you know, inflation remaining low. Uh, some of these measures you know, were unprecedented. So it's not clear exactly how it would work. There was a damage in financial markets, so the transmission could not be exactly what you expect it to be. Um, on the opposite side, again, I don't think uh, there is uh, there is such a threat. I mean, we also we we uh, I guess. Uh, you, you're young, you didn't, but, uh, you know, many central banks, bankers lived through the 70s when, you know, inflation was was high, uh, in that case, due to oil shocks, uh, at least in part, and, and perhaps central banks could be blamed back then not to be quick enough to respond. You know, that's another lesson that, that hopefully has been learned. And so, uh, again, we know what to do, increase interest rates, we know that if inflation picks up fast, we have to do it fast. I mean, the Fed has recently changed its framework, so it may tolerate a little bit more inflation. We'll see if the ECB changes its own modus operandi, um, and so may also tolerate a little bit more inflation. I don't think we'll, we'll live through the 70s again. I know that there are people who are worried about that. Um, so in terms of monetary policy, I'm just gonna stop here because I, I think it should be okay. Now, in terms of fiscal policy, I think it's a little bit more delicate 
because mm. uh, having so so I don't think that having debt about hundred percent of GDP is necessarily a problem for for monetary policy, uh, but it may become a problem for fiscal sustainability. Let me be clear. I don't think there's anything special about 100%, like there wasn't anything special to about 90% or other magic numbers. I don't think there's any magic number. Um, but I think it's clear that high levels of debt may become problematic if fiscal authorities are not uh, credible in terms of communicating with the public and in particular with debt holders how they will repay that debt. I think this is the crucial issue about fiscal sustainability. It's not so much the level of debt, right? There are countries, mm -hmm. and the typical example is always Japan, right? There are countries where that is actually much higher, 200% of GDP, and that has no inflationary consequence. In fact, in Japan, if anything, it's the opposite, right? It's a country where inflation has always been low, in spite of this uh, uh, very high level of debt. Um, but the problem is uh, when um, financial market participants become nervous about the prospects in terms of debt repayment. This is the lesson I think that we learned from the European debt crisis, which <clears throat> excuse me, uh, many emerging market economies were already familiar with. You know, if you go back to the Argentinian debt crisis in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, that as a percentage of GDP was 60%. So the level, you know, per se doesn't mean much. What matters is really whether investors perceive governments as credible in being able to repay or whether they expect a default. The moment they expect a default or they expect, you know, the default may also come from high inflation, but, but I kind of ruled that out by assuming that central banks are independent and they're doing their job. So, so then the moment... Investor are, are even if it's just expect. nerves, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, you know. But but then then the problem is this: this expectation can become self fulfilling because what can happen really there is that you know because I I, I expect I have an expectation that that government default, then I start selling off debt, right? I don't wanna I, I don't wanna get stuck. Then what's happening is that the price of the debt will collapse if we all sell it. And the interest rate at which government need to refinance that that will start rising even more than than the central bank in interest rate, right? So so then uh, spreads go up because there is a default premium in there, and then you know the situation might unravel. This is basically what happened with Greece. This is what happened with Portugal. It's what happened with Italy as well, but not because Italy had necessarily just a high level of of debt to GDP. They had it for twenty years. The problem is that the government at that time was not seen as credible, you know, to promise that they will honor that debt. That's really the issue there. But you and you don't see sort of those those concerns in say the UK or the US, any chance of sort of defaulting or these pressures that you've been mentioning. Yeah. So so when you when you think about the US in particular, there's something special, which is that the dollar is uh, the reserve currency. And, and so kind of by almost as an immediate consequence, dollar denominated assets in particular issued by the US government as seen, are seen as a safe haven. And so I don't think, I mean, 
obviously governments can turn around and get crazy. Uh, but I think that, you know, perhaps the, the, that expectation would, would really need to, to see something really crazy before, before materializing. Um, the UK, unfortunately, the pound doesn't, doesn't enjoy that status of reserve currency anymore. Um, but at the same time, I would expect, uh, you know, responsible government to be able to handle that risk relatively well. Um, whether you want to label the current government responsible, I think is a question for your more politically oriented podcast than, than for me. Uh, but yeah, so, so I think that we've seen advanced economies in, in which uh, that, that have behaved uh, fiscally responsibly. Um, again, in the, in the case of, uh, of the Euro debt crisis, but, but also uh, some other cases. Um, again, I think it, it's a lesson that if, if we want, we, 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 we have learned. We have so many examples, we, we should know what to do. And what government should do, what fiscal authorities should do, is to come up with a credible plan to make that whatever level of debt sustainable. It doesn't mean that you have to increase taxes as crazy tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It just means that you have to put in, in, in place um, you know, credible plans for managing that level of debt, which may even just mean stabilizing it. It may just be, you know, we're not going to increase it further and, you know, we're not going to jack up taxes and, and choke the economy. Um, and we're going to ensure a set of reforms that will allow growth and this growth will contribute to sort of repay that. Um, so basic that. advice is nothing too crazy and things should be all right. I, I think so. I think so. Uh, I mean, obviously, there, there could be other shocks. Mm -hmm. uh, those are, are hard to, to forecast. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it is desirable to, I guess, once uh, the situation normalizes, uh, maybe to take steps to ensure that, that uh, um, you know, on average, perhaps there's this a slight decline of government debt. But I don't think that's, that's again, the priority. I think the priority should be economic growth, uh, you know, should be prosperity, uh, income. And, and that, again, contributes to really ensure the sustainability of, of government debt. Um, that, that, that will yeah, kind sure. of address those concerns. Looking back to the sort of slope of the recovery, uh, mm -hmm. do you see any areas of the economy where there are where there is potential for any kind of economic scarring as a result of the sort of depression downturn, however you mm -hmm. want to call it? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that that um, this goes back a little bit to the discussion. Uh, of the interaction between business cycles and structural trends. Um, advanced economies are become, becoming or have already become uh, more and more service oriented. And so there is a, there is a natural um, direction of progress uh, that goes away from manufacturing, at least certain type of manufacturing towards services. Um, 
there are new sectors that are emerging. I'm thinking about, you know, um, everything that is related to, to high, you know, uh, developed technological uh, advances. Uh, I'm thinking about green technologies uh, and so on. Um, and so the sector of reallocation across these sectors will certainly interact uh, with the recovery. So, uh, you know, before I was talking about the fact that starting more or less in 1990, globalization uh, has uh, made some job completely disappear. And, and something similar may happen now, right? You could have some jobs disappearing now, some new jobs being created. And, and obviously the problem there is that, um, you know, while on balance, the number of jobs may remain the same, the people who do these jobs are likely to be different. It, it may be hard, uh, you know, in, in the 2008, the, the usual example was, well, you know, it was a housing crisis, so construction collapse. It's hard to make, you know, from, from one day to the next to convert someone who works in the construction sector into someone who works, say, in healthcare. Right, there are a set of skills, uh, education, etc., that that need to change, and it's probably not going to be the same person. So while on balance, you know, uh, a new a young guy like you enters the job market and, and goes in the right sector, so it's allocated properly, the person who loses their job in construction may take a while to, uh, you know, to find a new job. So so the, there there is likely to be. Uh, you know, quote unquote, winners and losers from from this uh, uh, from this type of uh, of recovery, and and I think these could be the scarring effect that that we may see. So so um, misallocation, persistent in certain sector, um, and uh, and and that's sort of the role I think of uh, uh, of policy uh, to deal properly with with this type of uh, of events, and I think. Um, this is one one area in which I think government failed in the past. I think they only look at the averages mm-hmm. and they saw the recovering taking place and say, okay, great. But then, you know, again, some people benefited a lot, some other lost a lot. And I think those those dynamics then manifested themselves into also uh, you know, discontent and and you know, the rise of populism and the whole other set of issues. And I think having lived through, I guess, 10 years of that by now, mm-hmm. uh, we should think carefully about how to handle this interaction between what's happening on the economic side and what then may happen on, on the political side. Trying not to leave sectors that might fall out of fashion behind those, kind of, those kind of ideas. Completely yeah. on their own, right? You mm-hmm. know, offer a little bit of support. So, so there's this very basic... Uh, theorem in economics, which is about trade, right? That everybody, uh, that that trade is welfare improving because, you know, if we exchange goods, it means that we both like it. So, you know, we're both happy, okay? But when you start thinking about who produces those goods and, and the fact that you speci- specialize in the production of one, but your country may have people who are producing also the other that, you know, is no longer produced, you know, that theorem works if there is some sort of compensation. And that's sort of what I have in mind when I think about, you know, sectors to disappear. You have to sort of somehow take care 
of people lose their jobs there. That's yeah, help really, on the back end. That's really the part I think that we missed in the in the globalization process, and and that really created large sacks of, of discontent in certain sectors of the economy, in certain areas, geographical areas of, of many countries and so on. Uh, and hopefully this time around, if there is again some reallocation of this uh, across sectors along these lines, that's, I think, what governments need to pay attention to. Just to, uh, just to finish up here, I'd like to hear... Uh your thoughts on the idea from the World Economic Forum and uh, plenty of governments sort of mirroring the Build Back Better line uh, for coming out of uh, this COVID crisis. How valid would you say it is that we need sort of unprecedented structural changes to capitalism in order to recover well from the pandemic? Well, I mean, it sounds uh, uh, a slogan. I I don't know exactly what it means in practice, and and maybe you know maybe that's something that that we need to figure out. I mean, I think there has been uh, an acceptance along the lines, of, you know, similar to what I was talking about just now, in terms of uh, um, spreading a little bit more widely. Uh, the the uh, benefits of economic progress, not just uh, uh, so if 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 capitalism means uh, uh, you know let's just uh, maximize progress and then hope that the market allocates the benefits by itself, uh, well maybe maybe we need to to you know intervene a little bit there. Um, it's not. It's not obvious. It's not easy, right? So, so how do you really do this? This compensation is not entirely clear. I mean, the, the, the you know, I guess uh, there is a little bit of redistribution. Or there, there is redistribution already uh, encoded in the tax system. Uh, but, but here we're talking about more than that. Uh, we're and, and and it's not necessary. It's not necessarily have to take the form of redistribution in terms of, oh, you know, we need to tax the rich more. And uh, it could also be, you know, uh, helping um, updating human capital. I know that it's a term that in some uh, uh, circles is not not like anymore, uh, you know, education, improving education, con- continued education, training on the job, just uh, just in case, uh, um, you know, uh, what would, the job what itself would you say- changes. Oh, no, no, that's all right. Uh, so, so I mean, there is a variety of measures. I'm not entirely sure uh, we have figured them out all, but, mm-hmm. but that's a sort of things that, that, that I think uh, we need to, to think about. One one uh, last thing that I'd like to sort of put yeah. to you directly is this policy of universal basic income that's yeah. received some plaudits and and happened. I mean, in in some forms in in the furlough scheme in the UK, direct yeah. payments uh, in the US. How much efficacy would you think that some sort of universal basic income for populations might have in the future? Is there any chance of switching to it? Is that would that be a good move? Uh, I'm a little bit 
skeptical about universal basic income, uh, at least in the you know most plain vanilla way in which um, you know the, the word suggests. Um, in the sense that, that you know, I guess as an economist, as, as many economists, if not all, I think incentives do matter, and so I think you know Italy introduce uh something similar um not quite and that's why i'm saying you know details matter but but i think at least conceptually along similar lines uh and we had you know very many examples of uh of of failure of of people you know uh kind of uh uh gaming the system uh and so i'm a lot more uh, favorable in favor of design a robust um, um, employment protection scheme. Um, you know, it could be unemployment. I mean, I, I think that the most important important form would be unemployment subsidies. Um, so, so we, we want to protect the worker. Um, not take the job again because this process of transformation uh, will naturally occur and by protecting the job you risk of kind of uh, creating further frictions so so i think it's important to protect the uh, the worker in this respect um whereas i think universal basic income could uh, distort the, the, the right incentives to kind of search and find the job. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about that mm -hmm. in, its, uh, in its plain vanilla form. Uh, that being said, um, you know, I wouldn't be necessarily uh, opposed to uh, giving it a try. I mean, I'm, I'm, if, if, if countries have... Uh, um, have the um, the opportunity. I, I know, for instance, uh, recently I think it's Wales has, has discussed the potential introduction of uh, of universal basic income. Um, you know, it, it could be uh, it could be an interesting interesting experiment. Uh, but yeah, so I think if if I were to choose, I would I would look at the reform of uh, of uh, employment protection and and you know uh, employment unemployment subsidies rather than going down the route of uh, universal basic income yeah and i think uh, i think sweden tried something similar a few yeah. years ago as well yeah. and uh i don't want to sort of speak out of turn here i'm not exactly sure how that went but uh but it's something that i've, I've wanted to sort of speak to uh, yeah an economist I mean, for a it, while about not just politics it, 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 it may also be, you know, country specific because again, <clears throat> there could be, you know, uh, relatively small details that make a difference. Preserving uh, may, those incentives. Yeah, exactly. Thing. I mean, if you can design design it in a way that it doesn't completely destroy the incentives, then you know, uh, sounds like a, a reasonable proposition. Uh, the other is that you know at the end of the day there 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 are um, cultural behavioral elements that may vary across countries. So even the same program, you know, in Sweden versus Italy may have different effects, uh, just because you know there are social norms 
that make people respond differently. Uh, and so, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, the same program may not be desirable in both mm -hmm. countries. Um, and that's why I'm saying, you know, uh, if, if there are countries that, that have the opportunity to try it, uh, without having, you know, terrible consequences, if things don't go well, then I think more evidence would be definitely welcome, uh, to try and figure out, um, you know, how these programs effectively mm -hmm. work. So, so more, we need more Sweden in, in, in more, some more, sense. More tries. Yeah, exactly. More so, yeah. Yeah. So that we can, you know, eventually figure out whether, whether the effects are, are what they, what we expect them to be in theory. Well, uh, we're, we're coming up on the, uh, the end of the show here. Thank you very much, Professor Ferrero, for coming on and, uh, and speaking to me. I think it's been a very interesting conversation from that sort of pure economic side that, uh, that I'd be, we've been missing here on the show. So thank you very much for coming on. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. I think, uh, it's been extremely interesting and, you know, uh, I wish all the best to you and, uh, and your audience for both your studies, but also kind of continuing to have interest in these topics that, that are certainly uh, important for, for moving forward. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. All right. Bye-bye.